You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kenway, Zuman, Hefei, Jennings, Antonio, Drunken Dak, Two Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our quartermasters, Samuel and Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When I started this look back at the story so far, we would blow right past huge, world-shattering events. The Protestant Reformation got a sentence, maybe two. But as we get closer and closer to catching up to where we left off, the scope narrows. The English Civil War and the Thirty Years' War, yeah, we talked about both of them. And we spent a fair amount of time on Henry Morgan, of course, but today we're talking about a period that will directly impact our story moving forward in undeniable, huge ways. It defines the story, really. The roots of the story to come are found here, and the ramifications of this story are they're the reason that Blackbeard was in the Caribbean in the first place. They're why his ship was named Queen Anne's Revenge, and why his port of call an English settlement, was named Nassau. So we're going to narrow that scope down and take a closer look. And if you look, ever since the conclusion of the Thirty Years' War, Europe experienced a time of general peace, relatively speaking. There were border conflicts and naval engagements and colonial spats, but large-scale general European war wasn't really a thing after the Thirty Years' War until the War of Devolution. That war, as were many of the wars in this era, was largely the fault of the Sun King, Louis XIV of France. Louis was an ambitious, powerful monarch bent on expanding his power. His wife, Maria Theresa, was Spanish, and Louis had been promised a substantial dowry when they were wed. But as we know, the Spanish crown had been teetering on the edge of bankruptcy for years, so they never paid up. To collect on this debt, Louis decided to take the Spanish Netherlands on his eastern border. The rest of the Netherlands, the Dutch, were more than happy to have a non-threatening Spanish colony between themselves and France. It's funny to think of a Spanish colony as non-threatening, but that's what the Spanish Netherlands were. So, the Triple Alliance of England, Sweden, and the Netherlands, all of whom were Protestant nations, stepped in to stop France's advance. And they did so successfully. That is the War of Devolution. But 
Louis did win a lot of territory in this war, as well as a lot of renown in France. And it was in this war, the War of Devolution, that he gained the nickname the Sun King. But this war was merely a prelude. The next war, the war to come, is the one that really matters. That war would bring thousands of new privateers into the West Indies, and those privateers would become the next generation of Caribbean pirates. This is episode 107, The Story So Far, Part 8. So let's outline the players for this war, insofar as the heads of state are concerned, at least. Charles II was the supposedly Protestant monarch of England. Louis XIV was the very Catholic monarch of France. William, the third Prince of Orange, was the Protestant stodholder of the Netherlands. Sort of, that's a complicated situation, but we can essentially think of him as a president. Charles II of Spain was the King of Spain, but it was actually his mother, Mariana of Austria, that was running the show. Charles of Spain was mentally and physically handicapped and incapable of actually doing the job of ruling. The Holy Roman Emperor would play a role as well, but we can generally consider Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and a large number of principalities and cities that were all on the same side here, we can just collectively call those the Habsburgs. And everyone here was related. For example, Charles II of England was William III of Orange's uncle, and he was Louis XIV's second cousin. Now we're going to have to look at that in a lot more depth later on, and it won't really become important for another 15 years or so, but keep that in mind. Now, politics and diplomacy all throughout this era, as well as war, well, they were all about balance. If one nation tried to expand their power too far, nearly everyone else would band together to put them back in place. And that balancing act could make for strange bedfellows. If this were all about religion, we might expect England and the Dutch to fight together against Spain and France, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. But it never worked out that way, because it wasn't about religion, it was about power, and it was about keeping the balance. Following the War of Devolution, King Louis still wanted to push his territorial claims into the Netherlands, but he only wanted to do so this time if he could get England on his side. England would be able to shift the balance of power in favor of France. And Louis accomplished this by what's called the Secret Treaty of Dover. The Secret Treaty of Dover was a deal between Louis XIV and Charles II of England. The Secret Treaty was brokered by Charles II's sister, the Duchesse d'Orléans. She was a powerful noblewoman in France as well as the sister of the King of England. And the Secret Treaty of Dover was... To put it plain and simply, treason. Charles was to abandon the Triple Alliance that was built during the War of Devolution. He was to abandon Sweden and the Netherlands, which I might point out were both Protestant nations, and he was to ally himself and England with France. Now that's not the treasonous bit. As for that, well, Charles was to agree to secretly convert to Roman Catholicism. And I want to be clear here, he did so. His brother, James, did so as well, but more on that later. In return, Charles would receive a sizable yearly pension from the French crown. And that there, converting to Roman Catholicism, which was illegal for the monarch in England, still is actually, 
that was treason. The next bit, well, the timing was left up to Charles II's discretion, but whenever he felt the time was right, Charles was to openly announce his conversion to the English people, as well as the world at large. Wisely, Charles waited to do so. He didn't want to immediately tell everyone he was a Catholic right before war broke out. But then, in this secret treaty, come their plans for Spain and the Netherlands, and these set up the world to come. Should the disabled, mentally handicapped king of Spain fail to produce an heir, and spoiler alert, that's what happened, but should that come to pass, the Spanish throne was to fall to the Bourbon dynasty in France. Remember, Louis's wife was a Spanish princess, and her children would have a strong claim to the throne. They would have a Habsburg lineage as well as a Bourbon lineage. This would shake things up in Europe immensely, and England, according to this treaty, was going to help France do this. Now as for the Netherlands, they were going to be sliced up like a pie. France would get the territories in the Spanish Netherlands that she considered hers, some of which actually belong to France today. England was going to get deeply important, at least to the English, ports on the coast of the Netherlands. However, the Prince of Orange, William III, was going to stay in power, according to this treaty. Remember, he was related to Charles and a bit more distantly to Louis, and he would serve as a stabilizing force. He would serve as a bridge into the new Catholic Europe that Louis and Charles were attempting to build. So Charles II approached his nephew, William, to test the waters and, if William seemed willing, to bring the Prince of Orange into this secret Treaty of Dover. William knew that war was coming from France, but Charles told him that England was likely to side with France in this war. But Charles suggested that he, and England as a whole, would support the Netherlands, and specifically William III, were William to proclaim himself an absolute monarch in the Dutch Empire. Naturally, King Charles of England would require a position of power in the Netherlands to make this happen, and what that means is that Charles would be expanding his own power by turning the Netherlands into essentially a puppet state run by his nephew. Of course, were William to choose to do so, he would have to convert. I mean, Roman Catholicism was the only acceptable religion for true, absolutist monarchs. And that's what Louis was. It was what Charles very much wanted to be and what he was trying to convince William to be. And imagine if he had succeeded here. That would bring England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and the Netherlands back into the Catholic fold. Well, Ireland was still in the Catholic fold, and Scotland was kind of doing their own thing, but they would be officially ruled by a Catholic monarch. Nearly all of Western Europe, aside from a few tiny principalities in Germany, would be under Catholic rule. Nearly all of Central Europe would be under Catholic rule. Over in the East, they would have their Orthodox religions, and up in the far, icy North, they would still likely be Protestant, but most of Europe would be Catholic again. And that would have been a coup that would have changed all of world history. But of course, Charles II wasn't successful. William was horrified at the propo William was horrified at the proposal. He rebuked Charles, and he denounced the treaty... And of course, war broke out. This was France and England versus Spain and the Netherlands and the Holy Roman Empire. 
France and England, were of course ancient enemies. Spain at one time owned the Netherlands, and the Holy Roman Empire owned other parts of the Netherlands, but now they were all fighting on the same sides. As I said, strange bedfellows. Now this war is commonly called the Franco-Dutch War, or often just the Dutch War, and the Netherlands found herself surrounded by enemies. France had huge armies on her western border, two of them, and to the east, Munster and Cologne had a German mercenary army, and then England landed marines in the Spanish Netherlands, which were to become English territories once the war was done. Now this all began in 1672. To put this into context, Henry Morgan was making the rounds there in London, and all of a sudden an anti-Spanish fervor gripped the city, so he found himself very, very popular. But in only a few months, the Netherlands was almost overrun by these surrounding enemies. Once the war seemed to be totally wrapped up, Charles II of England and Louis XIV of France began eyeing one another suspiciously. This is going to change things later on, but put a pin in that for now. Because the European land war isn't really what we need to talk about here today. We need to talk about the war at sea. And a subsection of the Dutch War is called the Third Anglo-Dutch War, which, surprise, surprise, is the third time that the English and the Dutch fought a war. The Dutch called that conflict Derde Inglese Zeerlog, or the Third English Sea War. You can see why this is so important to our story. England and the Netherlands had been and were currently fighting a naval war to take control of trade all around the world. You can see this very starkly in the two huge trading corporations, the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, which was still the English East India Company at this point. But in this conflict, the North Sea and the English Channel saw huge naval battles. The English would attempt at one point to capture the Dutch East India Company treasure fleet in the southern Atlantic. And, a small aside, that voyage actually was commanded by James, the Duke of York, the brother of the king, and on board his ship was a young seaman named William Dampier. But more on him later. At one point, England would attempt to blockade the Netherlands, unsuccessfully, and later on, the Netherlands would successfully blockade England. And in this sea war, the English were doing poorly. Almost immediately upon the outbreak of war, the English lost a fleet to a Dutch attack. Their navy had to sit out the first season of naval fighting because of that. Now the English would rebuild and try to claw their way back into the conflict, but they never really had the opportunity to put their fabled naval power to use. The Dutch outmaneuvered them and outplayed them at every turn. Now all of these political and military matters will prove very important in the coming weeks, but today we need to talk about what was happening in the West Indies. Let's look first at Jamaica and the English privateers. Before the war broke out, when Henry Morgan and Governor Modi, when, former Governor Modi Ford, when they were still in London, the king sent over a new governor to Jamaica who took a hard-line stance against privateering. Governor Lynch was his name. Now, Lynch revoked all commissions on the island and arrested a few of the bigger names in privateering. And he made it very clear that anybody who continued to privateer would now be considered outlaws. They would be pirates. But he did offer them one olive branch. 
he offered them a pardon, as well as 12 to 15 acres of uncleared inland Jamaican land. Now that might sound like a sweet deal, and many of the captains among the pirates already had plantations and slaves, but 15 acres wasn't enough to grow any sugar, not enough to make any money anyway, and regular pirates didn't have the money to afford slaves even if they could grow sugar on those 15 acres. Basically, what Lynch was offering here was the opportunity for a bunch of pirates to clear inland Jamaican land for no pay. And then, because this is how things worked, they would fall into deep debt, and eventually they would have to sell their recently cleared land to the sugar interests on the island. Now, the privateers could have turned to subsistence farming, maybe, but, I mean, have you ever farmed? And a few tomatoes in an herb garden don't count. I mean, have you ever relied on the soil for your very survival? I mean, most of us know IT or web development or teaching or cooking or driving or sales. And the pirates didn't know anything about farming either. They knew sailing and wind and navigation and killing. They could hunt and fish and gather fruit and the like for their food, but farming? They didn't know anything about that. I mean, what good would 15 acres do to somebody who had been at sea since they were 12 years old? This deal, offered by Governor Lynch, was a bad deal. It was a scam. It was reminiscent of those scams played on farmers prior to the Great Depression here in the U.S. And the pirates weren't dumb. They knew that this was a bad deal. Nearly all of them turned it down. And instead, they chose to turn to another occupation. They didn't immediately go out roving. They didn't, you know, want to get executed. Instead, they chose to poach logwood. Now, logwood is a particular tree that makes a deep red dye and grows in abundance in the Bay of Campeche. So they would spend a few months cutting logwood at their many logwood camps on the coast, and then they would sail it over to Jamaica or Tortuga where they could sell it to the fences that they knew from their pirate days, and then they would spend the winters in Tortuga or Bluefields or one or another of their haunts. They would have rum, women, sandy beaches, exotic intoxicants from the east, and no governor telling them what to do. If you ask me, that sounds a lot better than web development. However, if you're working in IT, you don't have to face the very real possibility of getting killed, which these pirates did. They were poaching the logwood, and the Spanish Coast Guard would occasionally attempt to bust up the camps. Now, the Coast Guard wasn't very successful, but the Spanish were already conscripting a few pirate names that we know already. For example, Gel Leca working at the logwood camps, was captured shortly after Panama by a Spanish galleon. He was sent to Campeche, where he was thrown into a dungeon and tortured by the Inquisition. And when he emerged a year later, Gel Leca, a one-time French Huguenot Protestant pirate, was a devout Catholic who served as the Spanish Main's most successful hunter of pirates and logwood poachers. And things continued like this for some time, until the war came to the West Indies. Now, Governor Lynch was not willing to empower the privateers of Jamaica. His navy, if you could even call it that, 
was capable of defending Port Royal, but virtually nothing else. However, since they were so non-threatening and weren't attacking anyone else, Jamaica was left mostly alone in this war. But the French, well, they weren't leaving anyone alone, and they were more than happy to hand out letters of marque to their own French buccaneers, of course, but also to their close English allies and comrades. And here in 1672, that still wasn't technically forbidden by the English crown. The English buccaneers could take foreign contracts. But we need to talk about the French in the West Indies for just a moment here. They had a ton of colonies over in the Lesser Antilles, as did the English and the Dutch, and there would be a lot of fighting over there during this war. But the French only officially recognized the colony they called Saint-Domingue in 1666. Saint-Domingue is what we today call Haiti, and they actually called it Haiti back in 1666 as well. It's the old Taino name for the island, or maybe the people of the island. And in the same way that Jamaica comes from the Taino, or Mississippi or Milwaukee comes from their own indigenous languages, the name didn't change very much for the people that actually lived there. But the Spanish called the island Santo Domingo, so a bunch of perfumed French aristocrats had to call it Saint-Domingue. And, well, once they officially recognized the colony, the French began to screw everything there up. They imported slaves and tobacco and religious persecution and women. I mean, not to equate women with slavery, but the French policies regarding that aspect had a lot of their own problems. We'll be talking about that next time, though. But aside from the terrors of slavery and religious discrimination, the French sent a governor, Bertrand de Ogron. He established a new colonial capital at Cap Francois. Cap Francois lay on the mainland of Saint-Domingue, a few miles to the east of Tortuga, and the city at Cap Francois would go on to be called Cap Francais, Cap Henri, and Cap Haitian. For now, though, I'm going to call it Cap Francois to avoid confusion, and I'll probably use Saint-Domingue and Haiti interchangeably. Bertrand de Ogron was an old privateer turned naval officer, and he was sent to this settlement to win the war. He embraced the buccaneers and their way of life, to some extent, as long as they would fight the Dutch. And that's what the French did. Bertrand de Ogron led a major attack on the Dutch settlement at Curaçao. That attack was a naval blockade, and there were a number of clashes within it. The forces on both sides were held together by a backbone of warships sent from Europe, ships of the line, and we know the names of their commanders, and we know the names of their ships, but after the war, those commanders and ships went back to Europe. They were naval units, and I'm not really interested in them. But the vast majority of these two fleets were made up of privateers. However, with a scant few exceptions, we don't know most of their ships or their names. Not yet, at least. A ton of the privateers that were here, in this naval blockade outside Curaçao, would go on to become some of the best-known pirates in the years to come. So, who was actually here? Well, there aren't a lot of people that we already know. You know, Henry Morgan and John Morris weren't here. Roque Brasiliano and Gilles Lacau weren't here. There were probably a bunch of people that were at Panama here at this battle, but most of them wouldn't have been commanders at Panama, and many of them wouldn't have even been commanders here. 
And for most of the people fighting, we don't even know if they were in the West Indies when Panama happened. There's only two names that we know for certain were here that... There's only two names that we know for certain were at Panama that may have been here. Charles Swan and Pierre de Picard. However, we can assume that some of the names which will become quite notorious in the next few years were here and fighting. Names like John Coxon... Bartholomew Sharp, Richard Sawkins, and Edmund Cook. All four were likely here, fighting, at Curaçao. Now, all four of these names were English mariners that were born in England, or Wales or Ireland, and they petitioned for letters of retribution from the king. And they sailed west to the West Indies to collect. And then there were other names who were not commanders when they arrived. Names like Peter Harris and William Wright, Thomas Paine, George Rayner, John Cook, and Edward Davis. Most of those are names that we know of at all because they were involved in a very well-documented raid that would take place later on. If this war were the extent of their activities, we wouldn't know who they are, but it's their piracy that made them famous. And those are just the English names that were here at this battle. What about the French? Well, people like Daniel Montbars might have been here, but probably not. Pierre Le Picard probably was, and Jean Leca absolutely wasn't. But we do have a host of new pirate names, also from that pirate raid that would take place later on, that were quite likely here at this battle. Michel de Gramont, Jean Hamelin, Jean Rose, Jean Lescouillet, Mathurin de Marte, and Francois Groenet would all become famous pirates in the next decade or so, and many of them probably got their start in this offensive. Those Frenchmen and the Englishmen I just mentioned would have been fighting on the same side. But what about the opposing side? What about the Dutch? Well, we have names that will become famous that may or may not have been here, and I tend to lean on the probably-weren't-here side of things, considering their history. But those are names like Nicholas von Horn, Jan Willems, Mikhail Andrezun, and Jacob Evertsun. See... Most of those names won't become relevant until even 1680, and in fact, some of those English and French names won't either. If they were here, if they were involved in this raid at Curaçao, or any of the other offensives going on, the reason that we don't know their names until they become pirates is because they were fighting a war. And if you're a governor or a merchant writing to some lord or the king, you're less likely to involve information about one random privateer raid than you would be about large-scale military maneuvers. So let's return for a moment to that war, but in the West Indies. That force of French and English buccaneers lost the Battle of Curaçao. It was actually quite a crushing defeat, so bad that Bertrand d'Auron had to flee in a fishing carrick all the way back to Tortuga. He gathered another 500 or so buccaneers in an attempt to rescue the men that had been captured at Curaçao, but he failed to do so. So, if any of those French or English names that we mentioned earlier were in fact here at the battle, then it's very likely that they spent the next few years in a Spanish or Dutch forced labor camp. The reason that Deloron failed to rescue his compatriots is because Spain officially entered the war, and Deloron was forced to return to Saint-Domingue. The French became quite occupied with Spanish raiding there on Santo Domingo. You know, they shared the island with a large French settlement, and a lot of fighting went on there. That gave the Dutch the opportunity to focus on attacking English shipping. 
Now the Jamaicans, unless their merchant ships sailed in to unfriendly waters, the Jamaicans escaped more or less unscathed, but all of the English settlements in the Lesser Antilles suffered. And in fact, the English all over the Third Anglo-Dutch War were losing. And it was around this time, right about 1674, that King Charles decided to take one last-ditch effort to save his colonies in the Americas. He knighted Henry Morgan, making him Sir Henry Morgan, and he sent him back to Port Royal, along with the former governor and a new governor named John Vaughn. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about Governor Vaughn here, but he was... he was awesome. You know, he wasn't a great man, he wasn't even a good man, he wasn't even very nice. In fact, he was a pretty bad man, but he's exactly who you want as the governor of Port Royal if you're telling a story about pirates. He was a lecherous, debaucherous old drunk. He was a gambler. He was deeply corrupt. And Samuel Pepys, a naval official, would call him, quote, the lewdest fellow of the age, end quote. And this man, this lewdest fellow of the age, named Sir Henry Morgan his lieutenant governor. I like him. And his job, with Morgan's help here, was to win the war against the Dutch in the West Indies. But then, almost immediately, when they returned to Jamaica, a few very big things happened. So let's take a second and look at the larger war. In 1673, the Dutch retook New York. They re-renamed it New Amsterdam, and they renamed the fort at the southern tip of Manhattan. They named it Fort William, after William III, the Prince of Orange. Now, this was common practice, but it was also something of a subtle snub, a little dig at the English, because, obviously, William III had turned down the secret treaty of Dover, and that means that he would never represent the English in any fashion whatsoever, absolutely not as their king or anything. But then, something worse happened to the English. They lost the Battle of Texel, and this was a disastrous defeat. It was the anvil that broke the camel's back, and it destroyed the English morale to continue fighting. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time on the naval war, but I should mention the two commanders. The English navy was led by the Lord High Admiral James, the Duke of York. James was King Charles' brother, and the future King James II of England. But James considered the Dutch High Admiral, when it came to admirals in general, quote, the greatest that ever, to that time, was in the world, end quote. The Dutch admiral was named Mikael de Reuter, and his ship was the 80-gun monster de Zeven Provincien. He is often considered one of the greatest admirals that ever lived. Today, he's seen as a Dutch hero. Years later, after his death, Louis XIV, who fought against him time after time, honored his funeral ship by ordering white powder blasts from cannon all along the French coast as his funeral ship passed. He's one of those military commanders that people like to hypothetically pit against other military commanders. You know, how would he do against Andrea Doria? Or, for that matter, how would he do against Barbarossa? And usually, de Reuter wins. And his victory over James at Texel was so complete that James resigned as the Lord High Admiral. At least, that's what he told everyone, and that's a clever cover. And it's a little true, but it's not the whole truth. Remember how Charles II was given the discretion over when he would declare his conversion to the English people? 
Well, he chose to wait, and that was the right decision. You know, say, hypothetically, you happened to lose this war, and all of a sudden the pieces weren't going to fall into place as you had expected, it would look very bad for you to be, oops, all of a sudden, a Catholic. But James II was less circumspect than his brother. During the war, when he was on the coast of France, James was seen taking communion and attending Mass and praying with Catholics. He didn't do this in private, he did this openly. And one could argue this was a sign of respect, but it was certainly a scandal for the king's own brother, for the heir to the throne, to practice Catholicism at all. Rumors began spreading, and later historians would confirm them, that James had converted to Catholicism. And he had. But that shouldn't be a big problem. Certainly it's not the sort of thing that would ever come back to haunt him, the podcaster said sarcastically, but we're not there quite yet. A Dutch flotilla from Curaçao set sail to finally deal with Jamaica, once and for all, to deal the killing blow to the colony. But before they sailed west, they sailed north. They were going to sail up to New Amsterdam to pick up additional ships and men. But when they arrived, the Dutch fleet was informed that the attack was to be called off. Charles had signed a peace treaty with William III. England and the Netherlands were at peace, as were England and Spain, and England and the Holy Roman Empire. England was at peace with everybody. But now France stood alone in this war. And that means that Jamaica was safe. All of Governor Vaughan and Henry Morgan's battle plans wouldn't be put to use. But this allowed the English buccaneers to stay with the French fleet, and that's a good thing for the French. The French were preparing the biggest offensive that the West Indies had yet seen in this war. And if this conflict were to have Governor Modiford and Henry Morgan-style characters, Bertrand de Oran would be Governor Modiford, and Henry Morgan would be Admiral Jean Comte, Duc d'Estrée. Admiral Comte was an old French military man. He had been in the French military since he was a boy, and when Cardinal Richelieu officially established a French royal navy, Comte transferred over, and he was named vice-admiral of the West. He had commanded expeditions to Africa, the East Indies, and North America, and in this particular war he had commanded the vanguard in one battle against the Dutch Admiral de Reuter, and Comte was actually responsible for pulling a draw out of the jaws of defeat, and when you're facing Admiral de Reuter, that's actually pretty impressive. So in this war, in the West Indies, he was the top naval official for France. And that was a tough spot to be in after England pulled out of the war, because the Dutch made sudden and shocking advances all across the Leeward Islands. Due to the treaty signed between England and the Dutch, the island of Tobago fell into Dutch control, and they went on to take over St. Martin, Cayenne, and Marie Gallant. So King Louis dispatched eight ships to sail under Admiral Comte. Four of them were 50-gun ships of the line, and the other four were 30- or 40-gun frigates. And that eight-ship armada joined Admiral Comte and his 60-gun Glorieux, and all of that was combined with the legions of French and English privateers. They immediately moved to take back the territory that had been captured. They retook Martinique and Guadeloupe, and finally Cayenne on 17 December 1676. And from each of those locations, their ranks swelled with new soldiers and new privateers. It was clear that it was time to go on the offensive. Tobago was where all of these attacks had emanated from. 
Admiral Comte correctly saw it as the major threat in the region. His first attempt on Tobago was in March 1677, and it went terribly. He lost four of his strongest ships to fire, and the fortress on the island, which had strangely been built by the English but now went to fight their former allies, that fortress repelled every attempt to take it and guarded the harbor very successfully. Comte was forced to retreat, and he didn't just retreat to Tortuga, he went all the way back to France. Now what he didn't know at the time was that he had done irreparable harm to the naval forces of Tobago. He had sailed in with an impressive fleet, and while the fortress there stood strong, ten of the thirteen ships in the Dutch fleet at Tobago were now rendered unusable. Most of them were either burned or sunk. So Louis XIV sent the admiral back to finish the job in December of 1677, and this time sent him with seventeen new warships. The French freebooters joined him once again. Not the English this time, they were busy doing pirate things elsewhere, but when the French fleet arrived, they found significantly less resistance in the harbor. In fact, only two ships. Those ships didn't pose much of a threat, but the fortress was still there, and it was still a problem. So Admiral Comte convened a council and was busy coming up with plans to take the fortress, when on 12 December, the chief gunner of the French fleet decided to take matters into his own hands. He ordered his guns to open fire on the fort. Now Comte rushed to the deck. Obviously, suddenly the guns were being fired and he didn't know why. And when he realized what was happening, he ordered this man to stop, which he did. But it was already too late. Amazingly, the third shot in this barrage hit the magazine and the fortress exploded. Now this was victory. It wasn't exactly the victory that Comte had hoped for. He didn't want to blow the fortress up. He wanted to capture it and put it to use. However, this victory did effectively end the Dutch War in the West Indies. There would be a number of battles back in Europe before the war was officially ended, but it was drawing to a close. The political ramifications of the war were only moderately drastic, if you can use those two words together. Spain continued her slow decline, and the Holy Roman Empire continued being a non-entity on the political stage. But as for the question of the French, English, and Dutch, near the end of the war, the English, who had signed a peace treaty with the Dutch, instead decided to go ahead and join up with the Dutch. They fought against the French in the last year of the war. What this war had done is... destroy is too strong a word. Charles II never stopped admiring and attempting to be as much like Louis XIV as he could, but the alliance between England and France had essentially come to an end, for now. And if we're being honest, England, maybe not the king, but the English people, were much more comfortable with that arrangement. But as for the effects in the West Indies, what this means is that all of a sudden, there were thousands of privateers who had been making a huge amount of money off of the war that were all of a sudden out of work. Next time we're going to tell the stories of those privateers. We're going to tell the stories of how they jump in with both feet, eyes closed, and no reservations into outright piracy. And we're going to begin that story with John Coxon and his raid on Santa Marta, which kicked off the final era of the Buccaneers. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, 
everybody who has left us a rating or a review, everybody who has recommended this show to your family and friends, and everybody who has signed up to be a patron on Patreon. Without all of you, I would not be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight